Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. The following panel is brought to you by the Sundance TV headquarters at the 2018 Sundance Film Festival. Enjoy. Hi. My name is Andy Garland. I'm the Vice President of Production at Broadway Video. Um, I'm here to introduce a bunch of glorious panelists. Before I do, some context about this panel. We're here to talk about some wonderful films. We have a great panel. And also talk about uh, business and legal issues that filmmakers face, that they face specifically, and that filmmakers uh, face generally. So without further ado, I'd love to invite out our panelists. I'll introduce everyone briefly, but they'll go into much more detail than I will in a second. Um, next to me is Tom Dunlap. He is a partner at Dunlap, Bennett, and Lobig, and is an entertainment attorney. Uh, Amy Scott, the director of How. Josh, <laughs> whoop it up. <laughs> Josh Bacco, the co-producer of Lizzie. <laughs> Brett Haley, the director of Hearts Beat Now. And Lisa Remington, the co-producer of The Price of Everything. So um, thought I'd start with, um, so oh, a little bit of context. We'll have a moderated section of this panel, and then about halfway through, we'll open it up to audience questions. So think of what you want to ask. Um, so uh, Brett Haley, um, if you could introduce your film for the audience. And, uh, and then also talk about how uh, original music defined your film. Uh, yeah, so my movie is called Hearts Beat Loud, and it's about a father and daughter, played by Nick Offerman and Kiersey Clemens, who in the last summer before she set to go to UCLA pre-med um, and leave the nest, they, he convinces her to start a band with him to turn their weekly jam session into a more permanent band because they write a song together called Hearts Beat Loud. And um, it's sort of about people at a crossroads in their life. And obviously, a huge part of the film are the original songs that the band within the movie create. So there are four original songs in the film, all written by my composer, Keegan DeWitt, who I, th I think has had like 20 movies at Sundance over the past five years. He's quite prolific. And he's done all of my films. And I, he's also a pop artist in his own right. And I asked him to write these songs for the movie, and we collaborated, my co-writer Mark Bash and I collaborated with Keegan on ensuring that these songs served as a narrative tool. They weren't just cool pop songs, which I think they are. They also helped tell the story narratively. So instead of dialogue between two characters saying, hey, I'm gonna miss you, or I love you, uh, or I miss mom, uh, it's a song. I think songs can do that a lot more effectively than 
just dialogue. So that's how we use the songs. And of course, now that we're here and you know the movie becomes what I like to call a product, whether we like it or not, our movies become a product. Um, the music is a great element. It's a great element that sort of heightens it from other films that I've done or other indies because there's these songs and these songs are their own product. They can exist outside of the film um, and they can help, I think, generate a lot more interest and buzz and excitement and especially for marketing, especially when you're looking at the other side of this. That's a great way, that's a great in uh, to just, if somebody hears a song, they go, oh, I like that song, what is that? You're like, oh, it's from that movie, Hearts Beat Loud, and it's called Hearts Beat Loud. It all sort of wraps up. So I think it was certainly an idea of like, I didn't want to do a quote-unquote genre movie, but this is the closest thing. It's, it is a genre, sort of a music film like Once or something like that. So I think it really helps. Thanks. Yeah. Um, so obviously that's an instance where original music and original IP is an asset for a film. Um, we also have on this panel documentary filmmakers that, you, that license uh, content from other artists. For instance, I'd love to, uh, Amy, if you could talk about your project, How, mm -hmm. and talk about some of the, the gems you were able to show in the context of that movie. The, the gems in terms of the music of uh, licensing? Well, I, I, uh, licensing in general. I oh, think, gosh. you know, yeah. the great Hal Ashby film. Sure, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, my film is How. It's about the cult director, Hal Ashby, from the 70s. We follow his life and uh, celebrate his films. So, of course, we had to license everything. I mean, <laughs> um, and I guess when I say license, we had to come up with our, are we going to fair use it? Or are we going to, you know, there's some things that you can't fair use. And then music is a whole other issue. And so, um, obviously, uh, documentaries aren't going to um, return as much as, like, when we looked at what it would cost to license, it was just ridiculous. Um, so we had to come up with a concept where fair use would apply to all of the clips. So it did sort of, uh, to some extent, dictate the way that it was cut, the, you know, the kind of story that we were going to tell. Sure. So, so and then your copyright rights dictated how you made your movie. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, it... Um, in the end, it's how I would have told the film anyway, you know? So it, it, it worked, yeah, it actually, it worked out really well. But it was an, I'm a first time director, so the, the, this whole learning curve on licensing and um, licensing music was, uh, it was steep. It was a steep mountain to climb. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm still climbing. <laughs> Those numbers can be shocking. They are unbelievably shocking. Music is yeah. really expensive. I didn't. I, you're like, this song's going to be so cheap. And then you're like, no. excuse me? I was so late to the party. Yeah, I guess my advice would be like, score, score, score. Yeah. Sure. That score down. Which Don't is, get that's too... why your film is going to be great because you can now you can take it and market. Yeah, it's its own song. thing. Really? And I would say to you out there, if you're thinking about like, don't get too attached to a big song. Like when you're writing or when you're, you know, because it, it might not work out. Yeah, in our case, we had no way around. I mean, it's Cat Stevens. You can't tell the story of Hal Ashby without Absolutely, Cat Stevens' yeah. music. I mean, that would be ridiculous, and I wouldn't be here now if we tried to do that. So sure. we had to do it. Tom, do you have any specific advice re related to fair use and licensing and when it comes to music? Well, so I guess, I mean, in the context of what Amy was saying, don't assume fair use, because yeah. assumption is the mother of all something. Right. Um, <laughs> and if, if Amy had done, well, I assume this is all fair use without a plan in advance and legal help, um, she'd be in a hard place. I, Amy and I actually talked beforehand, yeah. and it's also really important that you don't ask, I don't know, your divorce lawyer to give you <laughs> advice on fair use and copyright. Uh, so finding like the right lawyer, I think you had an experience with that. And yeah. I've run into a lot of filmmakers <laughs> who I'm their second lawyer, and that's the worst position for 
a filmmaker to be in, and it's a difficult position for me because we're backing out of all kinds of things that some things we can't back out of, right? Yes. So. Yeah. So we had a really good, we had a great legal team, but yes, definitely get an entertainment lawyer. Actually, my two of my best friends are out there, and they're attorneys. I think I tried to run questions by you guys all the time, and you were like, "Talk to your entertainment lawyer." <laughs> they're the ones to answer that question. So yeah, I was like, didn't realize how important that was until we started getting into contract negotiation. Like, my girlfriend says the same thing all the time. Uh, Lisa, another, I'd love to talk about, so we've, we've just talked about, obviously, the uh, licensing implications on documentary films, but uh, you have a different kind of documentary, a verite documentary. So I was wondering if you could describe your film and then talk about some of the producing implications of making verite. Sure. So uh, my film uh, that I co-produced is called The Price of Everything, and it's about the contemporary art market. And we followed artists, collectors, gallerists, and um, people who are very much involved in the art market. Um, Nathaniel, the director, his style is very much a style of verite. So um, Jennifer Stockman, who is a producer on the film uh, has uh, connections in the art world and she opened a lot of doors and then Nathaniel sort of ran with um, you know his his gifts connecting with people um, in terms of the verite aspect of it I think so much of it was just seeing what happened I mean we interviewed quite a lot of people and um, some of them worked some of them didn't work um, we even had some great interviews that just didn't fit in the overall structure of the film um, but I think the crew is a big um, element to getting a, a successful verite film because the dynamics and the energy that the whole team shows up with really just affects the vibe um, and how people are trusting and willing to open. And um, I think Bob Richman, who's our DP, has a philosophy. I may be misquoting him, but you know, you, you're always going to go back because the first time everybody's acclimating to each other, and the second time is like, you know, nervous systems relax and people begin to trust more. So sure. we went in with that idea of okay, we 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 may come back again and again. Uh, so the. The documentary filmmakers on this panel, you all have such amazing interview subjects. Uh, is, are there any tricks to enticing interview subjects to collaborate with you? Or was that, or was that easy? Was that hard? And is there anything you need to think about related to releasing? Related, related to releasing? To releasing the talent. Um, well, I mean, in our case, we, we were talking about Hal Ashby, so it was pretty was pretty easy, uh, ridiculously easy in that I'm so spoiled. I think the next film, I can't just waltz in and talk to Jane Fonda about something. Um, right. But no, Verite is totally different. Mm -hmm. I mean, y you could speak more to that. It's a, that's, that's difficult. Yeah, I mean, I think even in releasing the film and beginning to show the film publicly, um, you know, we've developed relationships with the characters, Nathaniel, and you know, other people in the film have developed deep relationships with the characters over the course of filming, and um, but also maintaining a certain integrity of what the film is going to say. So the moment of releasing the film is risky for everybody. Of like, oh, are they going to like it, or how are they going to react? Are they going to be upset? And then the characters, on the other hand, you know, they've trusted us to um, treat them in a in a respectable light, but still having our integrity about what we're going to say. So it's, you know, it's like uh, they opened the doors because they trusted us and we earned their trust. So on the other hand, we also have to live up to that on some level. So, you know, and, and this film, our film was not a gotcha film. It wasn't like we went in saying one thing and then something else ended up on the screen. So, um, that, which is a, another style of filmmaking. So Right, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, Josh, uh, 
if you could introduce Lizzie and sort of talk about what a co-producer does at the festival and on the film at large. Sure. Well, Lizzie is um, it premiered in competition here at Sundance. It's, uh, it's about Lizzie Borden. Um, and it's kind of our take on what might have you know, led her, if she actually committed the murders, um, to do it. Um, it also deals with um, a relationship that she had with her maid, the live-in maid, which a lot of the other stories that you might have seen about Lizzie Borden don't really explore. Um, and the project was developed by our lead actress, Chloe Sevigny. Uh, she developed it about seven years ago with HBO and Playtone. Originally, it was going to be a, a mini-series. And it just never really, unfortunately, got greenlit. And so it kind of sat for a while, and then it came to us. Um, Chloe was able to get Kristen Stewart to attach herself to play the maid. And that's really when the project kind of, uh, kind of flew and got to us. Uh, as a co-producer, uh, it means you do everything and get paid a lot less for it, <laughs> um, generally. Um, it's no, like I, directing, too. <laughs> <laughs> Very, at least in this world. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I work a lot as a line producer and then also uh, as a co-producer. Reason being, I usually take a lot more ownership over the projects. I like to oversee it all the way until the end, until it's actually delivered to the distributor. Um, so I usually first come on and deal with the budgets and hiring the crew and actually getting the, the production to the end and then stay on in, in, a, in a kind of a looser role and just overseeing post-production and you know, once we eventually sell it, make sure that it actually gets delivered properly, which we can talk about more, but there's a lot involved with that that not a lot of people know about uh, once you actually sell your movie. I think that's a great segue to sort of the other end of the process, uh, talking about when a film premieres at Sundance, what's that what that is like, and also how it connects to your producing process and storytelling process in general, developing stories and the like. Brett, you, uh, you've had three films in Sundance in four years. I'd love to get your read on, on what that's like and how it ties into your process. You know, every one has been so different. Uh, I was here in 2015 with a movie called I'll See You in My Dreams. I never thought in a million years I'd, I would get into Sundance with that film. Um, I, like, because I think people assume like you have to know people or something, and it's just not the case. Sundance is the best about if they like something, they're going to play it. Period. I don't care who's in it. I don't care who directed it. I was I was a nobody. I had an amazing cast, and and I didn't know what to expect, and I was pretty pretty freaked out about the whole process because you you hear stories. It's a uh, Sundance is is uh, is epic. You know, it has its own sort of mythology. So I think you show up thinking, we're gonna show the movie and it's gonna be overnight bidding war and you know, it's, and that's just what you think. And then you show up and you're like, you show the movie and everybody loves it. I got a standing ovation at Eccles. I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm, I'm famous. This is all. <laughs> I was like, I made it, man. And, and then we go to our party and I'm like, so what's going on? They're like, they're like nothing's going on. I'm like, yeah. we, we gotta sell this movie. They're like, there's nothing happening. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Nobody's calling. Did you sell that movie? We sold it. On the last day of the festival, we sold it to, at the time, a new company called Bleecker Street, which is now doing incredible stuff. And that movie, which I made for about $450,000, went on to make almost $8 million in the box office. Wow. At the same time, it was a film that people perceived as being made for a certain audience. And Mark, who's my co-writer right there, when we wrote this movie, I was 30. Mark, I don't know, you were, I don't know how old you are. You're older <laughs> than me. Um, 
everyone was like, oh, they were very smart thinking about this older audience, this very underserved older audience that wants to see films because my movie was about a 70-year-old widow played by Blythe Danner. I obviously as a 30-year-old male, that wasn't what I was, I was not that smart. I just wanted to tell a movie about a woman who was older. The themes that I wanted to tell were best served by that. About about grief and loss. It just made more sense to me than to make it about a 30-year-old guy who lives in Brooklyn dealing with grief and loss. It just wasn't as interesting to me. Um, so it it did find an audience and it did do well. Um, and then the hero was a different thing. Last year I was here with the hero, and that movie just—it was that overnight thing. It was. It was like we showed it, and at 3:30 in the morning I got a call. It's like we're we're going. We're and by the morning it was sold, and it was for way more money than I ever thought it would be. And I was like, whoa, this is crazy. But expectations were bigger, and that movie didn't do quite as well. It made about four million in the box office, didn't do quite as well as Dream. So you're sort of like going, wow, I made more money here, but that didn't do as well. And this year's a completely different thing. Every year is its own kind of weird, unique Sundance, and that's what makes it great and exciting and fun. Um, but I try, did I answer your question? You did, I mean, <laughs> very thoroughly. Is that so? <laughs> we were talking in the green room about people who talk for 45 minutes and then they, <laughs> that's me. Everybody. Right, Brett promised he wouldn't be that guy. <laughs> uh, Don't have a mic in your hand either. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's nice. Uh, Josh, I mean, we were, it was pretty interesting talking to you earlier about once a film is sold, what happens then? And there are some particularly salient legal issues and technical issues that come up. Can you talk a little bit yeah, about that? Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, I mean, I've always looked at it as like two lives of the film, right? The first life is is finding the money, developing it, making it, getting it to its final cut, bringing it to a festival, whether that be Sundance or one of the others, and then when you sell it, then second life of it begins, and that's a that's a very difficult life to it as well. It gets very legal. You start to have to negotiate a distribution agreement with whoever you've sold it to, which can be very drawn out and a long process. Um, there are delivery schedules, which is you know the requirements that each distributor requires for you to turn over to them so that they are then ready to actually distribute the movie. And those can be highly negotiated as well. Um, so you go through that process for a while, you know, and, it, and it, it's always exciting when you sell your movie and then you really, the work kind of really begins. Um, and so when I'm, when I'm working on production, I'm also, because I know that I'm gonna be responsible maybe a year later, maybe even longer, to, to deliver the movie legally, I'm already thinking about that during production. I'm already thinking about what exactly do I need, what I, I know I'm going to need. Chain of title is going to have to be clear. All of the agreements are going to have to be signed and very clear. The credit obligations is a big thing for distributors. They have to know exactly who really uh, has earned or deserves a credit contractually. So lawyers do their thing and negotiate the distri distribution agreement, and that takes on you know its own life. And then. Finally, the movie comes out. And at that point, it's really fun to actually, because the distributor is really then more in control. I mean, fun, sometimes you also feel like you're out of control. It depends on the sure. distributor and if you agree with how they're doing their job, you know. But um, you get to really enjoy it at that point, hopefully, and, and see it come to theaters or wherever it's being released and, and celebrate the film that way. So, so that's interesting. So when do you think 
This is like a loaded question. <laughs> when do you think you should get an entertainment lawyer involved in the film? Obviously, you know you need chain of title. You need to, you know you need to do clearance. Yeah. So. Absolutely, immediately. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'll jump in on that. Yeah, so true. I um, <laughs> have been making docs for 15 years. I only do documentaries. Um, and Donaldson and Califf, Lisa Califf is, I feel like she's my secret weapon. Um, when I'm brought into a project that's already started off, I that she'll be my immediate first sell to the rest of the people on the team. Um, you know, they have a whole system where as soon as they take on a project, then they hand over a big production package, which includes your materials releases, your appearance releases, your location releases. Um, they also um, encourage us, and on all of my films, I get E&O insurance like immediately, um, and um, you know, it's just getting everything off to the right on the right foot because going back and trying to fix things later, or if you had a subject that signed a release that actually wasn't very good, or you know, going back to people and 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 as you said, fixing things can be can a kill real a deal, right? That took us, okay. yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, have you ever have you guys ever had that happen? Like something like that, almost kill a deal, something that you just. You guys are all veterans, so probably not. But um, not but, kill a deal, but but definitely not kill required it. a lot of work to go back. It's always just yeah. like we already said, so hard to go back and get someone to sign an agreement that they should have signed a year ago. It's right. just it's it's just cleaner to get it done. But definitely, I've had to backtrack and things that were just unfortunately forgotten during production. You know, f for instance, if you have a minor in a movie. And there's nudity in the movie. There's actually a law where you have to send a letter to the attorney general saying, we are doing this movie, and there's going to be nudity in it. There's nudity writers signed and so forth, but there's also a minor in the movie. It doesn't mean that the minor has to be in the same scene with the person that's nude. And you have to actually just put that on file, saying, we are doing this. And, and there's probably more legal stuff that I don't even know behind that. But the point is, you're supposed to send that letter during production. And that would be something that you later deliver to your distributor to show that you legally put that on file. On one of my earlier movies, I did not know that. And that did not get done. And that was a big sticking point with our distributor. And we had to backtrack a lot and say, this actually happened. We didn't know we were supposed to do it. We filed that letter. And, and luckily, it all worked out. But those are things now that I know I'll never forget You know, during production. Yeah. It will always get done. And I've heard, and I don't know if you guys have had this experience, a lot of times, if you want to use a minor, you can cast an adult in a minor spot. You don't have any of those compliance requirements. I don't know if you've ever thought through that or, or heard of that, but that's something that... That's some lawyer stuff. Right that's there. Some <laughs> but minors are hard. I mean, they really are. There's other stuff, too. I mean, there's the parental consent, and you can't have them sign anything because minors can't sign anything, right? So I mean, I will say that when we were looking, Kiersey plays a seven... You know, we don't say her age, but she's 17 or 18. She's in the last summer before she's about to go to college. I certainly... It's a lot easier creatively and time-wise and legally and everything to work with someone who's above 18. So I was like, don't show me anyone above under 18 because I don't want to get attached and then make an already difficult short shoot that much more difficult because it is, it is more challenging. But sometimes you, you need that element and you work around it and you make it, make it work, so. Well, and the, another thing to add too is bringing on a lawyer. Um, I've been on projects before where you know, other people on the team have said, well, I don't know really why we need a lawyer. You know, what, why, why would we need a lawyer? But um, it's almost like imagining that you would have a budget, like, like let me re rewind. The, the lawyer will actually think through your specific project related to the law so that, you know, if you just, anyway, thinking it through specifically for your needs right. rather than 
just a blanket, generic. Like fair use or exactly. clearance exactly. or exactly. every film has to its even own set of challenges. think about the minor issue yeah. and say, right. oh, you may have a minor. This is another way you could go about it or um, something like that. I would just say, too, on the backtracking, we, we did not expect that we were going to get into Sundance. And so we were still editing. And, and when, then it was like a race to the finish. And so my head is in the creative. Like, we've got to get right. this film looking and sounding and uh, as good as can po possibly be. I did not want to deal with who, who was the grip in, in 2014 when we shot the Jane Fonda interview. But you have to do it. And so it takes away from, it's just the last thing that you want to deal with when you're takes really. Away from the creative process. Yeah, it yeah. does. And that, but that's what good producers are for too. But you know, obviously a good lawyer first. But you have the money to hire the lawyer in the first place. I mean, right. in the doc world, you need right. to raise yeah. the money. And then, but it should be. It should definitely be built into the budget immediately. Yeah. Right. Is there something that you learned uh, between films one and four that you wish your younger self would have known related to these issues? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you get, you should ideally creatively and business-wise and logistically be getting smarter and more involved. I, I, when I make movies, I'm, I'm, to my producer's annoyance, I'm, I'm, always, I'm like, tell me what's going on. I want to know this. I want to know that. And some directors are like, I don't want to know anything. Like, just I'll stay in this creative thing. But I enjoy the business aspect of filmmaking. I enjoy, I, it's, it's a crazy way to make a living, and it's, it's, exciting and fun and I, I like it. I like the ups and downs of it. Um, and I think what you learn, what I've learned is, is how, to, how to creatively stay true to yourself uh, while th there's always this idea, and we talked a little bit about this before the panel, of people trying to, and I, I, I touched on it briefly about I'll See You In My Dreams, of like, I'm gonna make the movie that this audience will like, or I'm gonna make the movie that will do this for an audience, that will have some kind of expectation. That's a really dangerous way to go into a movie, creatively and business-wise. You should make what's in your heart and your gut and not think about trends and not think about anything like that. The person, the next, you know, everyone's gonna be like, I'm gonna make the next Get Out. Well, don't, try. It's, it's a perfect film and try something different. The reason that movie works so well is because it's wholly original. So, and, and it was from something that Jordan Peele truly needed to tell. That's why it resonated. So I think I've learned to try to avoid the noise or avoid some kind of result result-oriented filmmaking is not good for anybody, for business, for creative. So I think I learned, and Mark and I, just we don't, I just, we just write what we want to make from our hearts and we leave it at that. So I, I would say, try not to go, this is gonna be a hit in the, you know, over 60 crowd or whatever. It's not gonna work, it's not gonna work. That applies to living too, result-oriented living. It doesn't usually yeah. work out either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Movies in life, so, man. Yeah. <laughs> so follow-up question on that. At what point do um, the, the commercial aspects start creeping into your process, or if at all? I mean, look, I make, I make movies, at least the movies that I've made so far, are very audience friendly, and it's not by design. Mm. Um, so far, Mark and I have written movies and I've directed movies that, are, that feature and are about good people, mm. that are about people trying to do their best, 
They're reminders of everyday life, of the joy in everyday life. I think there's a lot of problems in the world right now, and especially Hearts Beat Loud, I think, mm -hmm. allows people to escape, but not in this sort of Transformers type way where shit just blows up and you're like, yeah, that's an escape. I don't know how that's an escape. Yeah. I think it's nice to come back and feel something. Guillermo del Toro, I was at a Q&A with him and he said, people now more than ever in the current state of the world want to feel, they want to feel. And that movie obviously makes people feel and that's why it's so wonderful. <laughs> so I, to me, it comes down, if something makes, if something connects with people, I don't care what it is, what kind of movie it is, it will resonate with audiences. There's no, this idea of what is commercial and what isn't, I think there are some obvious things that aren't commercial that you could think of, like, I'm not gonna give you a, a shitty pitch on something that's obviously not commercial, but I think you have to understand that audiences are hungry, especially right now, for inclusiveness, for, movies that are smart and aware of, of what's going on that are not the same old, same old. So to me, that's the most commercial thing you can do right now. But you sh again, write what is in your heart. Don't try to do what's been done a million times over again. I made the band movie. Every band movie, a lot of band movies at least, are the Rocky story. You know, underdog that becomes famous or gets second place in the thing at the end, and that's great. Those movies are great and they've been done. What's the other take that you have on this genre, if you will? That's why Get Out, to bring it up again, because I love it so much, is so brilliant, because it's a different take on that genre. So what is commercial, what isn't, thinking about that, it's, it's impossible to know. And sometimes you just land on something, and everyone's like, oh, you just hit the zeitgeist of, of what's going on in the country, and you're like, I didn't, you, you can't plan that. Right. Can't plan it. Uh, Amy. Yes. Talking about how passion can drive a project, when did you forge a connection with like Hal Ashby's uh, former passion for Hal Ashby, and and what was the impetus for you making the film? Oh um, well, I've always been a fan of '70s uh, cinema. It's my favorite era of filmmaking, and constantly go back and study those films, the way they're lit, uh, the way the way the characters interact with each other, the, the space between lines. Um, I love it, and I uh, Ashby is always just kind of. I just always wondered, like, he made all these amazing films, and like, what happened to him? And I know in uh, the book Easy Riders, he's sort of written off as a drug casualty, and just didn't really ring true. And then I read um, Nick Dawson wrote a book called Being Hal Ashby. This is a great story. It's a really, it was a really fascinating. Um, his journey was incredible, and so I Googled it. I think I was really pregnant, and maybe in denial about becoming a new mom, and wanted to start a movie. So that's when it happened. <laughs> Cool. Yeah. Uh, I think we're, uh, it's time to open up the panel to attendees asking <laughs> questions. Um, we have a microphone coming around. Um, does anyone have a question? So you say that the dream is, of course, to have an entertainment lawyer right away. But at some point, you must have been working with a friend or something and like just gone a little bit too far into the project without a lawyer getting involved. When and how do you actually just say, let's pause the friendship, let's get the lawyer in? Um, can you, uh, for documentaries or narratives? Because they're, they're very different. I was thinking narratives, okay. but if there are similarities with documentaries. I mean, Josh, do you want to talk to narrative? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, they're very different. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, I mean, obviously, the, the, the correct advice is to always have a lawyer from the beginning, but I will be totally honest. On certain really low-budget movies, <clears throat> I, we just couldn't find the money in the budget to start with the lawyer. <laughs> and I will say that that was because myself and a producer that I was working with felt comfortable enough to actually negotiate the agreements and had enough experience to know that we weren't going to get into trouble on anything. And if we would, or if we did get into trouble, we would have people that we could call that could kind of advise on those you know, scenarios. But, but I've definitely done a couple lower budget movies without legal until we got to the distribution point. So, so um, just a thought on that. I mean, it would be worth, I, and I've done this for small films, just mm -hmm. to talk to a lawyer for an hour. Here's yeah. my concepts. Sure. What holes do you see? I see, you know, minors. I see fair use. Totally. I see, you know, um, oh, you're shooting in a public place. I see clearance issues with stuff in the background. Mm -hmm. So just to talk to a lawyer for an hour, I mean, that might be worth it. And most entertainment lawyers that you guys have worked with have probably talked to you for free on a low-budget movie for an hour. I mean, yeah. I know we, we do that if somebody just says, can you just walk this through with me? So that's what I would do. I would do it right away, though. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the answer. Don't get into a project with a friend as a lawyer. Um, if they're not in the field, I mean, sure, if, they're, if they do some of it, that's great. But, uh, you know, you're going to have huge problems the further you go because then the next layer has to unwind everything you've done. And that's way harder than starting from zero. Way, way harder. Yeah. Um, and it's way more expensive for you. We had a well, consultation I, call. Go ahead. We, we had a consultation call with Donaldson Califf too, and that was really helpful right at the very beginning. And then when you start rolling, when you like shoot your first interview or you get your first dollar, I'd say that you, sh you should probably think about it. I forgot. Another question? Thank you. This is really fascinating. I'm, I'm learning a lot. Um, I work in blockchain technology, and I was wondering if you guys have given thought into the way that movies can be financed in the way that the whole entire ecosystem from screenwriter to like original score writers up to the whole way up to the chain can actually be compensated fairly. Because for example, in YouTube, for example, you have the long tail of very many people, independent artists, that are not making it. And then there's blockchain efforts into making that into, say, record gram, different initial coin offerings that actually benefit the entire ecosystem fairly okay. in an undistributed way. Um, so, just curious, the thoughts. So, am I the talking about Bitcoin? I think. Okay, I got it. Right. Not, not just Bitcoin. So, blockchain right. technology blockchain. is a bit different from Bitcoin. Okay. If you're in ecosystem. I mean, it, so it's another way to get paid, but a lot of blockchain. I mean, so from an investment perspective, it's a little riskier, right? Because there's fluctuation in value. It's not cash. So it's kind of the willingness of, and I don't know, I mean, do you guys really understand blockchain really well? I mean, part of the problem is, is marrying that kind of end of the finance world with the art world. And right now, I mean, everybody gets a wire to my bank account, right? Or, <laughs> or like a wad of cash. Like we all get how that works, but how blockchain works and how that, what, there's some risk in blockchain, right? And so how that works for somebody here. It's a risk for US dollars too, right? Right, there's an inflation risk, but that inflation risk is a little bit more like we understand that internally. We all get like, oh, there's a 3% inflation a year or something. We get that there's inflation, but blockchain risk is like stock market risk. And to get paid sort of with third party stock is, you know, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, you guys tell me. Is it's a, it would probably be a little unsettling initially. I think you would have to create a system for that. Maybe we're a little far afield. But yeah, no, I just yeah, I just direct movies, man. <laughs> yeah. 
So, I, so this is why you probably need a lawyer. Yeah, there you go. If somebody comes yeah. and is like, hey, I'm going to pay you with like Bitcoin, you talk know, to she's probably like, I'm going to talk to my lawyer. Someone's yeah. like, probably Bitcoin, shouldn't just take I'm it. like, ah, so that's stop right there. Yeah. So. yeah. I see another question over here. Oh. Nope. Hi. I often see LLC in the film credits and was wondering why is that a common structure for film financing versus a sole proprietor, for example? So, <laughs> well, first of all, it, so limited liability company is the most flexible structure. It's generally, unless you file an election to not be a partnership, you're taxed as a partnership, so everything passes through to everybody who's participating. And if you're a sole proprietor, you don't have any partners. So that's not popular because it's one person paying for everything and owning everything. And there's no, sole proprietorships don't have liability protection. So even if you were one person and you were financing it yourself and you were paying for it yourself, you're gonna be one person LLC because you want the liability shield. So that's, it, that's why you see LLC all the time. You don't see corporations because there's a lot of regulation. There's double taxation, a whole bunch of reasons, but simple enough, if you're gonna do a movie, you form an LLC, it's flexible. That's, what every invest, that's what everyone's familiar with um, as well, and there aren't really any other good options. I'm curious, so. who, do, who, does anyone on this panel get into the weeds on such issues? And if so, do you have any thoughts about it? In, term, in, in the weeds in terms of? Of terms of how to, how to structure the financing of the film and all of that. We just sit with the lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> you, work, you work with smart, great producers, like yeah. I'm, I'm sure Josh and, you know, I mean, there, there are ways, you have to trust those people and, and I, I don't have the ability to kind of get into that stuff. I mean, I'll, I'll throw this out there. I tell people this all the time. So I don't, just like I was saying, I don't do divorce, right? I don't, I'm not a director of film. Um, so I suggest to people making films who are directors, don't do law. I mean, right. do what you do well, because you're gonna right. make a lot more money and be a lot happier forever if you do what you do. Um, well, and I would say even in the doc space, every project is different. Um, I've worked on documentaries that are solely uh, funded by foundations. I've worked on docs that are a hybrid um, or that are you know, financed with, fully with equity. So um, you know, some subjects ma subject matters uh, lend themselves to a pool of this kind of money, and a different subject matter would lend itself to you know, a different pool of money. So it's kind of each project is different. Sure, that makes sense. And I think somebody did it. Was it Indiegogo? I did Indiegogo. Okay, so yeah. I mean, could you talk a little bit about that? And yeah, it was great. I mean, you know, all I had was an idea. And I was like, you know, the annoying girl telling everybody, here's my Hyle Ashby idea, and finally convinced my producers to go on board, and um, well, we didn't have any money. And so uh, for us, it was, it was almost more of a, I mean, we raised like $58,000, which I guess is, is you know, it's a lot for docs, but it's really not that, you know, sometimes they raise a whole lot of money on Indiegogo. But it was more the proof of concept. Right. So I knew, like, okay, um, like, we got our sales agent at, when we did the Indiegogo campaign, because they could see, like, oh, this is good. This is, there's a lot of donors, there's a lot of hype around it. And so it served multiple, um, uh, it served us well for, for different reasons. So cool. is there just as much value then in the fact that with Indiegogo, you literally have the world voting on your movie in advance, 
And you have people saying, well, I'll, I would pay money for this. Yeah, I mean, I mean a if lot you of hit your goal, then it just says, okay, yeah. And, and we could actually track it, like, oh, there's, there's people in um, France or, you know, Tokyo or Paraguay, like everyone's sort of, um, we have a global, uh, we have the attention of um, people all over the world, and there was hype around it. So, I mean, it's still, it's hard work, though. It's, it's almost like a like, PR tool, though. Yeah, I, yeah, I, 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 did, really... I did Kickstarter on yeah. I'll See You in My Dreams. Oh, wow. I raised $76,000. And Kickstarter, if you don't get it, you don't get it. Yeah. yeah. So our goal was, I don't know what it was, 75 or something. I think we got it. Um, it's so hard. And I would say it's great because it's free investment money. You don't owe those investors money. It's a great system where they believe in you and they want to see you succeed. Um, but at the same time, it's a full, like, you better be prepared to be on the computer all day, every day. So... I'll throw this out there. We've worked with some uh, Kickstarter companies. Have you guys ever heard of those? They're companies that literally will yeah. do yeah. your campaign right. and back, manage back it. Backend or backend. And, it's, and they give take backend. Yeah. I mean, and it's backend of your campaign, so sort of low risk. Do it yourself. Oh, well, yeah. Sorry, you're the person who picks. No, no, please. I think there's a question. There's oh. a lot of questions. Um, just concerning more about the crowdfunding and whatnot, um, I just um, you said two of, of your productions um, did do crowdfunding. Um, could you talk a little bit more about how you got it noticed, essentially got people to hear about it? Because, I mean, $58,000 sounds a lot uh, to me. and Because I, I did like a five-minute short film that I raised like $800 for. And I just, how, do you, how did you get people to hear about it? You said the companies as well. But yeah, like, they're promotion companies that will release on social media and they'll plan a campaign for you and a lot of them will take a, a small fee up front, a couple thousand dollars, and then they'll take a percentage on the back end. And um, you should find one that focuses on film. But we've worked with them and some of them have been massively successful. Like I can't even tell you successful. I mean, so. I, I mean and obviously Hal Ashby is a huge following. Yeah. So that, that right yeah. there. It was built in. Subject we, matter counts. We, we sure. also <laughs> thought about it though, because I was like, well, we need, this is for, I don't know, we needed some famous people to vouch for us. So uh, one of our producers was friends with John C. Riley, and he was like, oh, I'll come by. And, you know, like, that was crazy. We were like, oh, okay, John C. Riley came by on his lunch break to do this, and we're going to do well, I think. And then Father John Misty covered a song that I need yep. to take down off the internet yeah. now. So that's <laughs> great. <laughs> um, and, but that really helped, you know. So we, and we, we sent it out to every blog in the universe. And, yeah, but one whole summer was me on the internet. Doing yeah, I mean, it's it's a full-time job again, and I had Blythe Danner and Martin Starr attached to my movie, and it was still, like, such a yeah. challenge, and we became, like, Kickstarter of the week, and we don't decide that stuff. They are looking at it and saying, wow, there's a movie over here with these great actors, and they're Kickstarter. Like, why, you know, so that that's good for them. Um, and I would say it's just a hustle, and you know what? It re a really good video really makes a difference. If you just sit yeah. in front of the camera and go, hey, I want to make this movie, and it's going to be great. Trust me. I'm, I'm great. Especially when you're yeah. making a movie, right? Right. Making right. a good video about your movie like, is really important. So what I did for the video is Martin Starr and I went to a retirement community, and we just interviewed people. And we just talked to them. It was like very similar to the themes in the film, and it was like almost like a viral video. It was almost like people being very sweet and, and open and, and frank about sex and about life after 70, and it was great. And so it had a different spin. And people were even like, is this a documentary or a narrative? I'm like, it's a narrative. It was a little confusing, but it worked. <laughs> so there's just different ways, and again, it's a full-time job. I, I don't recommend it. Yeah. <laughs> I think we have time for a few more questions. Uh, 
you guys ever bring on? Do you guys ever bring on anyone as like a producer who can get you access to things such as like music catalogs or, you know, access to certain resources besides actors? I know actors is a common one, it's, but just a low budget in the low budget space. It's an interesting thing that people offer sometimes. Yeah, I mean, credits are, you know, in the low budget world, credits and, and bringing people on like that is always a, a good negotiating tool to really put more to the screen without actually spending money. So yeah, even sometimes locations, if it's a really expensive location that we just can't afford but we really need to make the film, every once in a while there's a conversation about that person having an associate producer credit or in association with if it really helps your film and you just can't afford it. I, everything's on the table as far as I'm concerned to, to make it. What do you mean? Sorry. Like, does it get it more developed? Like, people are more interested in maybe sometimes when you're offering that association. Yeah, I think it's to some. It depends on the person, obviously. You know, sometimes it is exciting for them to think they could have an associate producer credit on a movie. Sometimes they could care less about film and don't want their name to be on it anyway. You know, so you, that's not really a negotiating, you know, tool. But. Um, We've definitely done it in the past. I mean, for all kinds of things. Music, like you're talking about. Um, a lot of different ways. You just you can't afford it, but people want to help, and they get to see their name on the screen. It, it can go a long way sometimes. It is tricky, though. Like, I find, you know, for those of you who know that the PGA are starting to try to crack down on producer titles, that the giveaway of a producer credit just for, you know, a small amount of money or because your friend is a producer, you know, your friend wants an associate producer credit. So, you know, I, I get a little bit irritated with the, the idea that we can just give credits away because it diminishes the job sure. that those of us um, are really doing to make a movie happen. So well, there are union again, limitations too. Some of yeah. the some of the guilds, there's some sure. limitations in their contracts. I mean, you know, like writers credits and things. But then it's yeah. also tricky because you really do need to make your movie, and how do you navigate all of those things? And sometimes. Yeah. But even I mean, I said producer credit, but even special thanks sometimes actually goes a long totally. way. Yeah. 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 Special my, if yeah. you look at a lot of my movies, the special yeah. thanks are yeah. long. Special thanks, no go. limitation oh. on that. Or yeah. even, even <laughs> you could even try very special. <laughs> Extra. Everybody else can get special thanks, but you're gonna get a very special. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's so many creative ways to compensate people, especially yeah. when you're strapped for cash, right? I mean, from we're talking about various ways to credit people, but sometimes just inviting someone to set if that's not too disruptive, yeah, it's a really helpful. Tool. Cool, right? Come yeah. to the premiere. If we get into Sundance, well, that kind of yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Any other? Another question, please. Any advice on selecting and finding a lawyer, entertainment lawyer? I, I'm going to stay out of that one. <laughs> so conflict of interest. Uh, I would say recommendation, um, track record, um, familiarity with your. Subject matter, maybe, you know. Um, I mean, I'm coming from a documentary standpoint, but, um, you know, the lawyer that I use is, has a really great track record in the field, and, you know. Yeah. How does he connect with your lawyer? If it's somebody who, when yeah. you meet with them, even if they're great experientially, you think they're a, kind of a jerk? You're, yeah. You know, it's yeah. not, you need a relationship with yes. the person because they're yeah. part of your team. That's my view. Totally. Anyway, it's it's in comparable this, films and find their attorneys. Right. And it's all relationships. I mean, once once you start, you get a good producer on board. They know somebody, you know, you know yeah. and then you sit down with them. You're like, yeah, that person seems stand up and legit, and they get what I'm trying to go for, what I'm protecting, and, and it, that's usually the way. You and don't be afraid to change horses if you start with a lawyer who you feel like, yeah. this person's billing me every single thing, and then that happens a lot. Tell them, and then if they don't, if they're not like, oh, you know, I won't do that, then just don't be afraid to ask 
a friend of yours like, well, who would you guys use? Or look for somebody else. Yeah, for I mean, me, that's I would the say, worst thing to go through a whole project with somebody in your team you don't like. I mean, yeah. you guys would probably know better than me. Um, no, for me, like personality is huge, especially with lawyers. A lot of lawyers, their nature, they like to overexplain everything. They like to make sure that they hit every single point that you should know about so that you can't come back later and say, oh, you didn't advise me on that. For me, I like it to the point, and let's just like, like meet these conversations quick. I generally feel like I know most of the stuff they're already going to overexplain, so let's just get right to the, to the point. I've definitely had clashes with certain lawyers that, that you know, it just was spending too much time on the phone. I was like, yeah, hey, let's There's let's strategy get there. I, I, I get it. I get it. I just don't have the time for it. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, you're, generally, your lawyer should tell you what you understand. I, I think that's a bad way to do it, too. Yeah. We, we will send things in emails following up saying you should do this, this, and this. But conversations with people who are experienced can be pretty short. Yeah. Um, but again, that would be an example where you might be like, well, I don't like my relationship with this person. Exactly. So, just like anybody else you work with, like a producer or a director. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. I believe we have time for some more questions, sir. Oh. There's, there's so many in the, in the back, back there. Yeah, yeah towards yeah. the back. Don't leave the back people sure. out. Hello. Uh, so yeah, I do have a question about, say you your movie, you get the funding, you get into Sundance or <laughs> and something, and you know you go to, you premiere to Eccles and it gets like a good turnout, um, and then buyers start talking to you about maybe the deals that they have or, and everything. I really don't want to know about the process of that and maybe what it entails and maybe any advice that you guys might have because you know, that's good to know for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, generally a film will have sales agents from one agency, a couple agencies, or independent sales agents, and usually the offers are coming in through that person. So um, usually that's public within Sundance, so the buyers know who to contact for that film when they want to make an official offer. And sometimes it's very basic, as in just an email form of just like the basic points that they are offering. You know, how many screens that they are offering, how much of an MG, if any, you know, how much minimum P&A budget and all, yeah. Minimum guarantee. So that's the, the amount that's that they're MG. paying for the I movie. saw you go, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, and, and generally the sales agents are filtering those offers to you and, and you're seeing them and, and kind of going through in them and trying to weed it down hopefully to you know, the top two or three if, you have, if you're lucky enough to have that many offers. And then there's a process where usually you get to actually meet with the distributors and talk to them. And the director, it's usually very important that the director gets to sit with the distributor, hear what their vision is for the, for the movie, and make sure that they're on the same page. And that, that's very important, because you know, if, the, if the distributor is not on the same page with the director, it's generally not going to be a very good release. You're going to have an angry director. Um, and it's just not good karma for the film. So usually those conversations happen before you actually strike a deal with, with whoever that distributor is. Yeah, I mean, everyone is, <clears throat> everyone's different. Sometimes you get to the end of the festival and you're like, this is it. There's nothing else going to come down the pipeline, so we better take this and hope for the best. Um, there are other times, like Josh talking about, where you've got a few people and, and you can go back and forth. They're off- sometimes they're offering very different things, and it depends on how you see your film. I make, I make movies that I believe should be in movie theaters, shared experiences, and, and so... One of my first things when I'm here, especially with this film, and we're in negotiations right now, so I've been in this world for a few days. It's been long. But what, what happens is, that what I say to someone is, what's your commitment? What's your screen commitment? What, how much do you believe in this movie? How, how far are we gonna go with this theatrically? 
That's important to me. That's as important as an MG. Sometimes you can get a big MG up front. <clears throat> Let's say Netflix buys your movie for $5 million or $8 million. It's a huge MG, but they own that movie for life. And that's it. You don't see any back end. There's no re-upping, and it just lives on Netflix, which is great. And it's a great way to get films made that otherwise wouldn't get made or bought that otherwise wouldn't get bought. I have nothing against streaming and nothing against Netflix, but it's a different way of thinking about it. Someone else could offer you three and say, I'll guarantee you, they wouldn't do this, but 800 screens, we're gonna go fully nationwide. That might be more important to you. It might say, I don't care. I believe in this movie. And the back end is more, I, I believe in a year or two years, I'll make more money than an MG of five with Netflix or something like that. It's about how you, what your relationship is with your film. If you're lucky enough to do that, that's great. Sometimes it's, you just got one offer on the table and you got to take it because you want your movie to, to get out. Um, it's not an easy way to make uh, a living. It's, it, there's no guarantee in bringing your, even if you get over the massive hurdle of getting your movie into this film festival, which is arguably gotta be one of the most competitive film festivals on the planet, it's still no guarantee of anything. Mm -mm. It's, it's, I mean, I think 95% of Sundance movies eventually get some kind of distribution. That's pretty amazing. But the guarantee of that, of this big boom success, it's, it's different and it's getting, and, and the model is changing every minute. Mm -hmm. Movies are, uh, studios are coming in now pre-packaging and not buying as much of finished independent films. They're, they're wanting more control from the beginning. We've just got to keep up with it and know that, you know, I believe very much in the sense that if, if you make something that's pure and good, it'll find its way. Whether, whether you know, it'll, it'll, it'll find an audience and find its way. So um, it's weird. I, 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 I said to one of my friends when we were here, I said, this is the weirdest job in the world. <laughs> so, yeah. We have time for one more question. <clears throat> Over here. So the talk is titled Idea to Deal, but I feel like we've been focusing more on the deal side of things. So to bring it back more of like the gestation period, how do you navigate like the intellectual property aspect of, you know, coming up with an idea and if it maybe doesn't get very far, how you protect your own idea versus like being inspired by something and battling like if someone thinks you stole their idea and that side of the creative process? I mean, I can speak of narrative things as just a writer. Um, unlike where the music industry is going right now, where it's very, if you kind of create a song that sounds like a little bit like another song, you'll, you're, they're, like, there's been some things that have happened recently that I've been like, that's not good for music, because there's only so many notes that you can play in an order, you know? Like, and I like, if you look at Tarantino, who's, <clears throat> who's brilliant, uh, and if you look at it that way, he could be sued for every movie he's made because he's taking his favorite bits of everything and putting them in Blender and making his version, and that's awesome. And I think that filmmakers should be allowed to do that. Unless you're blatantly stealing someone's idea, I, I don't, I try not to, again, think about that. I put blinders on and write what I want to write. Mark and I will oftentimes be like, oh man, did you hear in that movie this thing happened, which is like the same scene in ours? I mean, it's fine. It's probably completely different in execution than ours or different tone. 
It's very hard to like intellectually sue somebody and be like, You're, you have a similar scene or you have a similar premise of my movie. Like, you know, you can't say if somebody makes a boxing movie and it's similar to Rocky, Rocky, you know, Sylvester Stallone can't say, hey, I'm suing you for making, trying and, to, And the you good know, news is you can't, you call you can't it Rocky. do it. You yeah. literally can't do yeah. that. You, you yep. can't legally own an idea, right? You can own an original work of authorship. That's what copyright is. But copyright has to be, this sucks because I'm a lawyer, I'm gonna say this, fixed in a tangible medium. So unless you're copying, don't make a Harry Potter movie right, with Harry Potter in it, but you can make a movie about wizards flying around with wands and stuff. Um, of course, you can make 10 movies about Abe Lincoln, so you can't own an idea ever. Nobody could sue you for making a boxing movie, right. even if it was very similar to Rocky. Um, and that's where- It just wouldn't do well. It might not. <laughs> but, uh, so don't but do so, it. So that's the point. I mean, <laughs> just, I think that's, that's right, is make the movie you wanna make uh, and just don't steal actual elements like the names of characters or thing don't copy stuff don't copy things that are fixed does that make sense and if you want to make a biopic well there's then more. you should um, get the life rights and you should speak to the estate or the family or whoever runs wh whoever is uh, you know if they're alive obviously you've got to get get rights from them and if they're dead then you go to the estate but that's that was pretty pretty necessary too because you don't want someone else coming yeah. on making another Hal Ashby movie that, why are we both doing this well and figure out what life rights you have right, right? is right. it just the picture is it the novelization is right. it you know a follow-on what's the duration yeah do you even need life rights and you like, don't sometimes sometimes you, you don't, don't yeah. but but so this is weird right in California this, say you yeah. die right this right is, right that dead person has another 70 years of life rights. But in New York, that person died. As soon as they die, their life rights terminate. Very so, New York. So you need no. <laughs> So, but the point Love is, it. you need a lawyer <laughs> when you're considering this stuff. And getting you're dead, you we got you. <laughs> <laughs> you're ours now. That's funny. But yeah, I, mean, I, met, I met the writers of Chappaquiddick, which is coming out soon, yeah. and yeah. they're like, yeah, no, you know, we were writing this very kind of edgy movie about JFK. A lot of people didn't want to touch it, but you know, the life rights are ours. We can do what we want. We can tell the story that we want and put a spin on it or make it as real as we want or too real for people or whatever. I haven't seen the film, but you know, they can write that. There's nothing that says they can't write that. And um, obviously if you're adapting something, you know, you want to, you have, those are very difficult things to do. But unless you've read someone's script that's been registered with the WGA or copyrighted in some way, and then you steal that exactly, the odds are, you know, and you're not, you seem like a very nice person. <laughs> <laughs> but life rights aren't necessarily required. You know, you can do a biopic, but they protect you or they, they maybe help carve out the space. So as you said, someone paranoid, else doesn't paranoid, But yeah, you don't have to. Yep. Remember, anyone can sue anybody for anything. Anytime. So even if there's no claim, somebody could still sue you. And that happens a lot. Um, I mean, I, Thank, thank goodness for you guys. I see it a lot more than you. Yeah. Um, but uh, just you know, remember that. So if you can get any kind of agreement or consent, even a nominal, marginal one, it's so much better than having to fight with someone. So much less expensive. Or even living in the fear of like, oh shit, yeah. what, if get, what if they're gonna right. say something or yeah. uh, you're, you'll sleep better if you have the agreements in place. Yeah. Just make sure it's a good agreement so you yeah. don't have to keep renegotiating it. Right. <laughs> well, so, so question. We got here from Bianca, who's um, with anonymous. Warner. Yeah, anonymous. We won't say who she's with. <laughs> um, who's involved with a lot of films? 
uh, but she brought up copywriting your idea. So you can't copyright your idea, but I tell people all the time, I'm gonna go make this pitch, or I have a treatment. The further down the road you get to putting it on paper, the more fixed it is, the more detailed your idea, and you copyright that, the more protected you are. So that's a huge, huge part of developing, you know, as a writer, you, I mean, you- Yeah, anytime you finish script and you're like, this is very much the idea, like it's, it's gonna be close. Mark and I will copyright it with the copyright. File multiple copyrights. Don't right. wait. Right. Don't yeah. wait. And then you also register with the WGA. We're WGA members, so even if you're not a WGA member, you can register with the WGA, and, and that does also help you. Not as much as copyright, but it does help, and it is important. So I highly recommend that. When you finish the script and you're like, this is my idea, this is the bones of it, register that. Even and if it's a treatment, copyright it. And you can do that for documentary as well. Yeah. It doesn't oh, yeah. have to just be narrative. Absolutely. Yeah. And you should. Yeah, I think it's important to say also that I think if you've never copyrighted anything, I think a lot of people might be afraid that it's like a really long, complicated process. Or it's difficult, not. And it is so not. You just go online. You know, you have to answer some questions and you might need some advice from, you know, advising from people about, you know, who owns the script and, and those things. But works for hire. It's, it's, yeah. You literally can do it in a half hour. You submit the script as a PDF online. You won't get the certificate back for a long time, like a year, year and a half sometimes. You won't get a registration for a year, year. Yeah, the, the actual yeah. certificate, the, the copyright yeah. certificate back. But you get that, it just shows that you've now submitted it for, you know, for the And copyright. the key with copyright is the date that you file it is the date that it's registered, which is really important. Right. So. <laughs> Thanks, guys. How for, expensive oh, is it? What's that? How expensive? $55 for okay. a script if it has one writer. I, I make my yeah, co-writer Mark pay for it every time. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, okay. man. It's like less than a meal here yeah. Yeah. Sundance. So. During Sundance. Yeah, during Sundance. Right. It's like, it's basically the cost of like a sandwich at Sundance, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like a half a chamayo. Yeah. 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 Well, I, that concludes the panel. Thank you very much for a great discussion. Big round of applause for our panelists. Subscribe for more panels from the Sundance TV headquarters at the 2018 Sundance Film Festival.